from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You've made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. The word of the Lord.
The Lord be with you. As we begin this time of the message, two introductory comments. First, I've been really struggling with sickness this week, and um, I'm on a bunch of legal drugs this morning that have seemed to touch most of everything except the cough. And so I know last service coughed quite a bit, so uh, in advance, I just uh, say I beg your pardon, and uh, I'm sorry about the cough. Hang in there with me. Second comment, I have now heard this sermon twice, and it's not very good, I'm telling you. (laughs) Some of that is by design. This is a sermon with very little window dressing. No uplifting stories, fanciful turns of phrase. This is a sermon that does not have a high listener immediate gratification rating. The design of this sermon is to get us to the Lord's table with an ounce more understanding of how much Jesus loves us. I also want to give you information about Psalm 22, one of the most beautiful psalms, powerful psalms in the whole Psalter. And so I'm just going to give you the information, and I think the idea of the love of Christ will begin to permeate, but the climax of the service today is when you will stand up and walk to that table, again, understanding the depth of the love of Jesus for you. So let's pray. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on waterstone. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us in this moment. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Would you say that last phrase with me again, out loud? Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Amen. During the most climactic moment of Jesus' life, He cries out the words, the first line of Psalm 22. Now understand, in the ancient times, there were no chapter and verse divisions in the Old Testament. So when a person wanted to reference an entire chapter or book, they would quote the first line of that chapter or book. And by quoting the first line, they would mean the entire book. So when Jesus on the cross cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He intended that we know that what Jesus is about... And what this moment means is Psalm 22. So the point, if Jesus is the most influential figure in the history of the world, then in order for us to know what's going on all around us, we need to understand Psalm 22 and why Jesus quoted it on the cross. 
So to do that this morning, we're going to ask three questions of the psalm. First, who's the psalm about? You may have picked up that David wrote it, but it seems to go beyond David and talk about Jesus. So who's it about? And if it's about Jesus, then second question, what does Psalm 22 help us learn about Jesus? And then third question, what does Psalm 22 help us to learn about our lives? Who's it about? Jesus. What do we learn about Jesus from Psalm 22? And what do we learn about ourselves from Psalm 22? As we said, David wrote Psalm 22. And on the surface, it does seem to be a lament where David's just going through another hard time in his life with all the enemies against him again. But a little deeper understanding of the psalm, and you understand that this psalm goes beyond David's experience, and it's about someone beyond David. Let me give you three illustrations why I say that. First, the scene of this psalm. You may have noticed when Kelly read it that, first of all, there's this public part to this scene where people are ridiculing him and scorning him in a very public setting. He calls these people uh, bulls of Bashan and lions and dogs, and uh, they are just ridiculing him. Then it goes in verses 14 to 17 to talk about how he has this thirst, so so thirsty that his tongue is swollen and he's going to suffocate. And then it talks about he is so emaciated from hunger that his bones are on display to the people who are ridiculing him. And then finally it talks about his hands and his feet being pierced. But the clincher about what this scene really is is in verse 18 when it says that they will cast lots to divide my garments. A verse, by the way, that's quoted in all four of the gospel narratives, the crucifixion narratives of Jesus' death in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In the ancient world, whenever any criminal was executed, the tradition was that the people who were involved directly in the execution could barter for all his worldly goods. Understand that the scene that's being played out in Psalm 22 is nothing less than a public execution. Now, we've mentioned over the past weeks as we've been in the Psalms and we've been learning about David, that his life is the, by far the most um, described life. We know more about David than we know about anyone else in ancient antiquity. And yet, there is nowhere in David's life where there's a public execution. Secondly, I think this psalm uh, that David writes is about someone other than David because all this bad stuff is happening, and if it was happening to David, he would be pushing back hard against it. You know, as we've learned about David, he did not take injustice sitting down. There would have been some break the jaw and smash their teeth action. In the psalm. But in Psalm 22, there is none of that. Rather, there is a spirit of total submissiveness in the psalm that is out of character for David. And lastly, 
If you look at the entire psalm, it breaks into two halves. In the first half uh, is this back and forth between how much David is suffering, but he's still holding on. But I'm suffering. I'm holding on. The bulls, the dogs are screaming, but I'm trusting in you. This back and forth between trial and trust, trial and trust, there's this suffering. But then, At the end of this section, in verses 20 and 21, it begins to wind down, and David eventually says, deliver me and rescue me. And then we come to the entire second half of the psalm from 22 to 31, and you have these verses that are like this, like God has actually heard the prayer and answered it. I will declare your name to my people, and in the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Jacob. It goes on in verse 27 to say, all the families of the earth will now bow down. And then notice how the psalm ends in verses 30 and 31. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Now that's the question. Who has done it? The psalmist is saying that because of the deliverance of this one person who's been publicly executed, all the nations and future generations, poor and rich throughout all time, will be delivered. So the original audience hearing this psalm could not have possibly thought that this psalm was about David because it wasn't about David's life. We have no indication it happened to David, nor would David have the audacity to say that because of my deliverance, all the nations for all time will have a Savior. No, I'm submitting to you that David did write this psalm That he sat down perhaps during a trying time in his own life and began to write a lament of how hard life is. But the Holy Spirit moved on him, gave him prophetic insight such that he was no longer writing about himself but about a greater David, a future king, who through his immense suffering would bring an immense redemption that would save every nation on the planet. I'm suggesting that David is writing with prophetic insight a psalm about Jesus a thousand years before he lived. Now, I'm not alone in thinking this or that this could happen. If you go to the book of Acts in chapter 2, when Peter is preaching the first message uh, to the church after the Holy Spirit came at uh, this season of the the Jewish calendar called Pentecost. He's preaching to all these people around Jerusalem. And he says, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet. There it is. He was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. That last line is from Psalm 16. But I'm quoting this and offering it to you as evidence that Peter and the early church saw David as a prophet, and that some of his psalms were written with prophetic insight to give details and pointer to the life of Jesus, 
even a thousand years into the future. I'm suggesting that David's writing Psalm 22 with prophetic insight about Jesus on the cross. I'm not uh, alone. As I said, Peter thought that. Much of the early church thought that. One of the early church fathers actually called Psalm 22 the fifth gospel. I like that title. And we learn much about Jesus on the cross from David's prophetic writing in Psalm 22. That's who the psalm's about. Now, what does it say about Jesus? Two things. And this is where, again, as we've divided the psalm in half, it first tells us in verses 1 through 21 that Jesus suffered immensely in order that he could give us an immense redemption. Jesus suffered immensely in order to give us an immense redemption. Let's understand what that means. You read through verses 1 through 21, and there are these just amazing... When you, when you actually sit down and think that David's writing a thousand years before the crucifixion of Jesus, the detail that is in Psalm 22 that the gospel writers pick up on and include in their narrative is just astounding. Uh, so much of Psalm 22 is present in the way the gospel writers describe the crucifixion of Jesus. But what's interesting is to note exactly when you go to the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when Jesus in Matthew and Mark quotes Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The timing of when he says it, we have to notice. Up until that point on the cross, Jesus has suffered with great poise. The text tells us that he was scourged. I want to remind you what that was, scourged, or sometimes you'll hear it called flogging. Jesus was flogged. In those days, to inflict pain on a prisoner, they would wrap a bunch of leather straps together, long, three or four foot long, and on the ends of each strap would be a sharpened stone. And the express purpose of the flogging was to dig those stones into the prisoner's back and pull it out and flesh and skin. <coughs> flesh and skin would be flying everywhere. Jesus was flogged. And he had a crown of thorns stuck into his skull. He was publicly ridiculed. His bones were on display. And he said from the cross, I thirst. His hands and his feet were pierced. And Jesus took it. Isaiah says that he was like a lamb before its shearers is silent. He took it. But something happened in the moment. We're told in the gospel narratives that the sun went out. It was dark as, as night from noon to three in the afternoon. I've always loved this about Jesus. When he arrived his birth, it was midnight. It was uh, midday. It was uh, daylight in the middle of the night when he was born. But when he died, it was midnight in the middle of the day. And 
at the end of the darkness, just before he died, around three o'clock in the afternoon, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Something happened. The text said that he screams it out. He roared it out. Up until this point, it had been nothing but poise, and he took it. And now he screams out and lets loose. I suggest to you that what happened is there the pain began to transcend from brutal physical pain into a pain that we can only describe as emotional or relational pain. What had happened is that the father began to let go of his son. The father began to not be as close there to his son. He had to let his son die. And Jesus has now experienced that pain of losing his first family, losing the closeness to his father for just this moment. The Bible tells us that we're made for relationship. So we know something of this kind of pain, this emotional pain of loss of relationship. I mean, we know as bad as it is to lose money, and that hurts, as bad as it is to lose our health, and that can sure hurt, but there's nothing quite in human experience like losing a lifetime love of 40 or 50 years. Some of us in this room know that pain. And here is Jesus, who had from all eternity, had his heart intertwined with the heart of the Father. And now in this moment, the Father stepping back and saying, my son, I need to let you go. You, you need to die. And Jesus was willing to die. But the pain, the emotional pain of relationship No one ever suffered like Jesus to lose what he lost in that moment. What was happening was that all of the sin, Jesus has now become the sin bearer and the concentrated load of the world's sin, yours, mine, all the fallenness and bitterness of the planet is placed on him in that moment. And the Father judges sin. He executes his justice, his wrath poured out his son, the sacrifice. The Father does this because He wants to be able to have you and I in His life. He wants to be able to forgive us. And in order for God, the Father, to forgive you and I and still be holy, He had to have His Son pay the price so that He could be a just God and a loving God. And Jesus pays that price. All the sin placed on Him. <coughs> my God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me is not a rhetorical question. The reason that the Father allowed His Son to die was for you and for me. The immense suffering would now bring an immense redemption. What would happen now is that because Jesus pays for all our sins, we are forgiven and now become God's family. And the second half of Psalm 22 is able to happen. We can now praise Him in the assembly. All the families of the earth can now bow down. Posterity for generations forward can sing praises to the God because Jesus paid for our sins. He suffered immensely. And now we can be redeemed immensely. The writer of Hebrews chapter 2 caught this. When, and he actually quotes Hebrews, I mean Psalm 22, 22 in Hebrews chapter 2. And the flow of thought is just amazing. In Hebrews 2, it says that Jesus tastes death for everyone in order that he could become the pioneer of our salvation. And then, becoming the pioneer of our salvation, he is not ashamed, get this, to call us brothers and sisters. Jesus tastes death for everyone, immense suffering, so that we could experience immense redemption. And what is immense redemption? We get to be Jesus' family. From the ones who put Him on the cross, our sin must be extremely terrible and hurtful to God. We put Him on the cross. But because Jesus was willing to go to the cross and pay for our sins, we get to be, those who put Him on the cross, get to be now His family. And Jesus is not ashamed to call us brother and sister. We lose some of the impact of that in our culture. We are a very family-driven culture, but not so much in this way. When we want to put ourselves forward in our culture, we don't often always talk about our family unless we're related to someone famous, like a shirtless wonder, something like that. But <coughs> in the ancient culture, you didn't use resumes. In our culture, we use resumes to put our experience, our degrees, our credentials. If we want to move forward and impress people we talk about individual accomplishments. In the ancient world, and in still many cultures today, if you want to put yourself forward and impress people, you talk about who you're related to. You put your family tree out there. Now, of course, it's always edited. There's always people in our family that we don't want to be related to. We would never mention them. So it's interesting, right, when we come to Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, when his pedigree is on display, there's a genealogy of all his grandfathers. There's a couple things that jump out at you when you read that as Jesus is sharing with us his pedigree. First, you would notice that there's at least four women mentioned by name in Jesus' genealogy. That would never happen in the ancient world because the ancient world was a patriarchal culture driven by men. Women were low status. It would never happen in the ancient world where if you wanted to impress someone, you would mention any of your women relatives. And here comes Jesus. He not only mentions women, what's interesting is the women that he mentions. No Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel, you know, the, the grandmamas. He chooses to call out these grandmas. Tamar, an incest survivor. 
Bathsheba, a rape survivor. Rahab, a prostitute. Mary, an illegitimate pregnancy. These are the women that Jesus says are his grandmothers in order to impress you and I. Do you know what this means? This is why some of you came this morning, right here. This means that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what your teachers have said about you. It doesn't matter what your parents have said about you. It doesn't matter what your bosses have said about you. It doesn't matter what your friends have said about you or what your enemies have said about you. Jesus loves you and calls you his brother and his sister. That's why you're here this morning. He paid for your sins with immense suffering. And now he welcomes you into his family and calls you sister and brother. That's what Psalm 22 teaches us about Jesus. So lastly, two closing applications. What does this mean for us? First, what this means is that when we suffer, we have the greatest possible companion in our suffering. You know, when we suffer, we, we know this. Some of us are right here, right now. We don't get answers when we suffer. It's very rare. We don't know why hard things happen to us, bad things change our lives. We don't know why. We seldom get answers. And it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to plead why and plead how long. If we've learned anything from the Psalms, we've learned that. Don't take it sitting down. But we seldom get answers. But you know what? I've watched you. I've watched you for years. You can still go on without answers. What you can't go on without is companionship. And Christianity is the only religion that we know where God says, I will be your companion in suffering because I have suffered. Came across the story of a Christian poet named Christian Wyman. On his 39th birthday, Christian was diagnosed with an incurable form of blood cancer. He wrote frankly about the agonizing effects of his illness and the treatments. He says, I have had bones die and bowels fail, joints lock in my face and arms and legs so that I could not eat, could not walk. I have passed through pain I could never have imagined pain that seemed to incinerate all my thoughts of God and leave me sitting in ashes alone. The article goes on. When the diagnosis came, Wyman was a rising star in the literary world and the editor of a prestigious poetry publication. Though Wyman confessed his Christian faith had kind of evaporated in a blast of modernism and secularism in college, the diagnosis started a journey for him back to God. 
It wasn't a particular doctrine that drew him back to the faith, but Wyman found a friend in the suffering Messiah. And he writes, I am a Christian because of that moment on the cross when Jesus, drinking the very dregs of human bitterness, cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The point is that God is with us, not beyond us in suffering. I am a Christian because I understand that moment of Christ's passion to have meaning in my own life. And what it means is that the absolute solitary and singular nature of extreme human pain is an illusion. I'm not suggesting that ministering angels are going to come down and comfort you as you die. I'm suggesting that Christ's suffering shatters the iron walls around individual human suffering. Christian's point No Christian, no person suffers alone. Christ has suffered there first. And He is the greatest possible companion in our suffering. The second thing this teaches us about ourselves and our own suffering is that all of our suffering has a future. All of our suffering has a future. I stole that line from this quote by Michael Green. Jesus' cry on the cross means, for Christians, there is a future for suffering. Suffering ultimately is not blind and wanton and senseless. It has a purpose. Look what Jesus' suffering produced. Look what benefits flowed from the awesome suffering gladly endured. It is the same with Jesus' followers. Mystery, though it is. Much flows from it when it is gladly endured. Character is formed by it. Art and creativity is stimulated by it. Compassion and care is evoked by it. Royalty comes from it. Jesus was regal on the cross in His suffering. And in the end, the greatest mystery of all, 2 Corinthians 4.17 reads, For this light momentary affliction, which is only for a moment, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What this means is that when we take Jesus as the center of our lives, then this paradigm, this dynamic of immense suffering produces immense redemption becomes true in our lives too. That when we suffer, God uses that suffering to bring redemption and our suffering is not meaningless. It has purpose and value. Obviously for the future when we're with Jesus, but even now. It does grow us. It does connect our wounds to other people's wounds. Whatever we suffer loss here will show up somewhere else redemptively by the way that God chooses to use our pain for His purposes. So what is for us to do is to hold on to that. Don't quit. Keep praying. Keep obeying. Keep showing up for worship 
even when, like Martin Luther, love God, sometimes I hate him. Don't quit on community when suffering is so isolating. The last thing you want to do is to be around people. Keep dragging yourself around other Christians. Don't quit. Do the next thing. And what you will begin to see over the long haul, the long haul, the, the immense suffering, one day you'll see that God was there bringing a redemption that you've not been able to see clearly, but it's there. He's using especially your pain. I'd like to invite the servers. <coughs> like to invite the servers to prepare communion as we get ready to come to the table. I share this brief story, and then we'll have the words of institution. And then you'll have time to honor Jesus' pain at the table. In the early 90s, there was a teacher, a professor at Whitworth College. His name was Gerald Sitzer. He and his wife and their four children and Gerald's mother were all in a minivan driving home from a family outing. And on the way home, a drunk driver going 80 miles an hour, crossed the median and hit their van head on. And within the space of five minutes, and within Jerry's reach, his mother died, his wife died, and his daughter, Diana Jane, died. About five years later, he, he wrote this book called A Grace Disguised. And near the end of the book, he shares these words, and these words call us to communion. The God I know has experienced pain and therefore understands my pain. In Jesus, I have felt God's tears, trembled before his death on the cross, and witnessed the redemptive power of his suffering. The incarnation means that God cares so much that he chose to become human and suffer loss, though he never had to. I have grieved long and hard and intensely, but I have found comfort knowing that the sovereign God who is in control of everything is the same God who has experienced the pain I live with every day. No matter how deep the pit into which I descend, I keep finding God there. He is vulnerable to pain, quick to shed tears, and acquainted with grief. For three years now, I have cried at every communion service I have attended. I have not only brought my pain to God, but also felt as never before the pain 
God suffered for me. I have mourned before God because I know that God has mourned too. God understands suffering because God suffered. I'd like to invite the servers into positions. Here are the words of institution that explain what we're about to do. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body, broken for you. As often as you eat it, remember me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and he held it up. And he said, this cup represents my blood shed for a new covenant, the forgiveness of sins, as often as you drink it. Remember me. In your time and when you are ready, come to the table and honor the pain of Jesus Christ, the pain of the Heavenly Father who gave themselves so that we could become their family. Honor their pain this morning and bring your pain as you come. Take a piece of the bread, tear it off, dip it into the cup. You can take it up here at the front, anywhere around the room, back to your seat. Come, honor the pain of God.